you glory this morning. God, you are the only one who is worthy of glory. You are the only one who deserves our praise. God, may we see these as truths about your name, about who you are, and worship you with our whole hearts, God. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Take a seat. scripture this morning comes from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and that is on page 996 of the Red Bible under your seat. That's 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. Welcome to Trinity. It was awesome to hang out with all of you at the tailgater last Sunday. It was a lot of fun. In fact, it was just sort of like a whole week of good time with community. So our community group had one of those days where we just sort of had no agenda, just hung out, ended up just losing track of time well into the night, and that was just hugely refreshing. I just left feeling really grateful for you guys and grateful to be part of this family. Before jumping in today, I'd really just like to take a second to, to open in prayer you join me. Lord Jesus, I, I just feel the weight of, of today's topic in some ways and, and just um, how unqualified I really am to, to um, at least in, in my own strength, how unqualified I am to, to speak to, um, to aging and death. So Lord, I pray that, that today your spirit would be the one that, that makes Scripture alive to us, that by your Spirit you would show us the, the way that the way to age well, the way to live well. Amen. So today we continue in gospel and life. So the gospel, that's the term that we use to talk about the work of Jesus, so the life, the, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and and. and all that, that, that's included in that, the salvation that God brought about through Jesus. And so what we're doing this summer is we're basically taking the gospel, that core message of the, the Christian faith, and just applying it to sort of the nuts and bolts of life. And my hope is that it's been good so far. We, today we approach a topic that, that can be pretty difficult to address. We're talking about the topic of aging, sort of end-of-life issues, death. Now, why is it important that we talk about the way that the gospel applies to aging. So I think we get a sense of why it's so important. We could easily just turn to one of the, the poems recorded in the, the Hebrew Scriptures. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a collection of poetry called the Psalms. And the 90th Psalm sort of begins by, by the, the poet sort of exploring mortality and aging. He's, he's talking about his own death, the death that all people share. 
And, and the poem sort of hits this, this climactic moment where, where he makes this really interesting request of God. He, he says, on behalf of all of God's people, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Which to me is just such an interesting thing to ask for. Like, what is he asking for there? He's asking that he would be conscious of his death. He's asking that God would make him really, really aware of the fact that, that he and everyone else are aging. And, and why does he ask that? It's, it's given in the very same verse. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures refers to sort of this knowledge to live skillfully, the knowledge of, of what it means to live the way that we ought to live, to really have your priorities straight. And so in this poem, the poet is saying that God needs to, he's, he's pleading with God to help us number our days so that we can know what it is to live well. So why is it important that we talk about aging? Well, part of it is that by t- when we talk about aging well, in some ways we're, t- we're talking about living well. The, the other reason why it's important to talk about aging is because everybody does it. We all age, right? I think in our culture, when we talk about aging, we, we think of aging as just something that, like, quote-unquote, old people do. But what is the, like, at what point do you become old, even? I'm not saying that there's no meaning to the word. I'm just saying that in our culture, we tend to define that really arbitrarily. Like, oh, is it when you're over the hill? Or is it when, like, post-retirement age? Or, or what is it? The, the truth is, we are all actually aging. The, the reality is that as soon as life begins, it begins to end. There's no other way out of life. Only aging. My father is aging. I am aging. My son is aging. Not everyone who is aging is old, but we're all aging. And so it's really important for all of us, no matter what life stage we're in, to think about it. Because ultimately, we all want to come to the end of our lives and look back and, and have this, this, I don't know, like a sense that I've truly lived, that this life w- was full. We all want to be able to look back and say, I lived the way I should have. No matter what tragedies strike, no matter what the setbacks were and the losses, we want to be able to say that in all the darkness, I lived the way I was made to live. To age well, we have to live well. Christian thinker and author Henry Nouwen, he, he spilled a lot of ink on the topic of aging, mainly around, around the topic of caregiving, and a lot of his stuff is really, really good. In fact, he wrote one book just entitled Aging, and for the most part, it's, it's excellent. There are some things in the book that we as the leadership of, of Trinity would not endorse. So, for instance, Nouwen is what's called a philosophical pluralist, meaning that he sort of believes that all religions are equal paths to, to God, and we would not endorse that view. But most of the book, though, is, is actually really, really excellent. And what I love in particular about it he, he, is the way he defines aging. Now and defines aging as the culmination of life. Aging is the culmination of life. So what he means is basically that it's sort of the summing up of everything that has come before. Which means that sometimes aging can be this really sad process toward the end. It can culminate a life of, of frustration or, or resentment. It can also just culminate a life of tragedy. But then there's this other thing that happens sometimes where aging culminates a life in a beautiful way. Even in the middle of, of trials. 
And so that's kind of what we're asking this morning, is how does the gospel help us to culminate our lives in a beautiful way? How does the gospel change the way we age? In today's passage, Paul's writing to Timothy. A couple weeks ago, I was in 1 Timothy. So you may remember Timothy was a pastor that Paul had sent to, to one of the churches that he had planted. So Paul, years before, had planted a church in the city of Ephesus. And so he sent Timothy there to, to pastor the, the growing church there. And so this is the second letter to, to Timothy and probably the final letter that Paul ever wrote. And, and, and you can kind of tell that Paul realizes that the end is near for him. Maybe he's just getting on in years. He most likely was at this point, but also he probably realizes that the authorities are turning against him. He's been in prison for a long time. Paul, Paul's life uh, did end in violence, so he, he, he was executed for, for the message of the gospel. We don't know what all is on his mind, but he knows that the end is near. And so in this paragraph, he's describing sort of how he thinks about nearing the end. And it's fascinating because we're getting this, this insider look into how Paul actually thought about his, his whole life, what he thought about as the culmination of his whole life. And I think it's something that all of us want to be able to say. And so there's three things that I want to point out in the passage. Paul reveals three things about how the gospel shapes the way we age. So the first thing is that the gospel gives us hope in aging. The gospel gives us hope in aging. So I, I want to throw a slide up of, a, of an author named Don, uh, Donald Hall. I've mentioned him before. He's, he's becoming one of my favorite authors. So he, he was an American poet and an essayist. For, for a time, he was the poet laureate of the United States. He spent a lot of his career just sort of documenting the process of aging. In particular, there are two essay collections at the end of his life where he's you know, moving on into his 80s and, and sort of like documenting artistically his own aging process. And it's, it's very very powerful. It's often laugh-out-loud funny. He's, he's really, really humorous, and yet somehow he makes it so that, like, the humor makes it even more heartbreaking. He's a genius. You should probably read him. He's really good. Quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. Anyway, so now one of the most important lines Donald Hall ever wrote was, uh, was long before he was actually old. He, he was probably in his mid-50s. It was in a poetry collection called The Painted Bed, and it was this collection that he'd put together to sort of process his grief over losing his wife. And so topics of death and, and aging were, were heavy on his mind. His wife, Jane Kenyon, was also a poet. Um, she died of leukemia at 47, so super young. And he writes this poem about a year later, and, and the poem begins with the line, to grow old is to lose everything. And he's, he's processing grief and dying and what he, what he just saw his wife go through. In our culture, that's, that's usually the only way aging is talked about. I think that Donald Hall was just sort of expressing something that, that many of us culturally feel. I think youth is very much celebrated in our culture, and that's not entirely a bad thing. So some things that are great about and worth celebrating about youth, I mean, I think young people do have a perspective that we need. Youth is sort of a sign of life. It's a time of deep feeling. It's also full of potential. So when you're young, you have sort of a lot to look forward to. If, if you think it's wise for yourself, romance may be part of that, certainly career, maybe school. So you're looking forward to a lot. There's little rites of passage along the way. The culture sort of celebrates different points in the journey. And, and as a young person, you're, you're still sort of on the front end of everything that you're going to offer to the world. And so it's a time that's full of dreaming and, and, and imagination. 
And that perspective is important for us. Here at Trinity, we believe in being together in, with difference. And so that means including the perspective of the young. But in our culture, sometimes it's the only perspective that we celebrate. We think youth is beautiful, but old age, not so much. And this is part of the reason many of us often face a crisis, right, called the, the midlife crisis, where we realize that our youth has ended. We celebrate youth so much culturally that, that there are people who face psychological crises when their youth comes to an end. That, you know, there's sort of this realization that there are no more major milestones that the culture is going to celebrate with us. We realize that there's nothing huge we're looking forward to in the sense of like a big sort of life-changing shift. So we start to feel sort of cut off from our purpose, cut off from meaning. And it's usually around the same time, after, after youth has sort of ended, that we, that we really start to realize that we are mortal. Which might sound weird, because on an intellectual level, we all know that we're mortal, right? So I'm not so much talking about the, like, would you affirm the statement, you are mortal, check yes or no, yes. I'm not so much talking about that. I'm talking about this actual experience, where you have this moment where you realize that you are going to die. You're going to die. That, like, you are an organism, and the clockwork inside you will stop one day. And for many of us, we'll be conscious of it happening as it's happening. And we have no idea what that's like. There's this moment that many of us come to. Sometimes it, 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 we have to wait all the way into to middle life to, to have this moment, but there's like a moment of realization where you realize that life is going to end. It's going to end for you. And once you experience that, I mean, really experience that feeling. There's no going back, really. Life is different when you realize that life is going to end. And so I think that's really what's at the heart of our fear of aging. It's a fear of having no more chances. It's a fear of having regrets. And it's the realization that death really is final, and it's just this sort of unknowable experience. We have no idea what, what it's like. And it's a realization that, that has led many people to, to lose hope. So one person that comes to mind is the filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, brilliant filmmaker. He's famous for The Seventh Seal. That was sort of the thing that just like gained him worldwide fame. Famous movie. If, if you've ever taken like a film one on 101 course, you will almost certainly watch The Seventh Seal. And, and basically what, what, he, what he's talking about in The Seventh Seal is that death is such a, a huge reality that so, such an unbeatable thing that it renders religious faith almost ridiculous and absurd. You know, that death just cannot be overcome. It is the unstoppable enemy. It will take all of us. So just enjoy your life as much as you can. That's how the movie ends. It's just like, all right, guys, so enjoy. Death will take you eventually, and you can't beat it. That's basically the ending of the seventh season. So, like, like he, he had this perspective of death is just too huge for us to possibly believe in anything beyond the life that we experienced prior but in today's passage, Paul seems to have a really, really different perspective. Paul's coming to the end of his life, and he describes his thoughts as he approaches death, as he's sort of approaching the moment when, when death is going to overcome him. 
And he, what's he looking forward to? Because that's, well, that's the first thing. He's looking forward to something. What's he looking forward to? He says he's looking forward to a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. And, and when you take the whole passage in, into perspective, this is an image of victory. Paul doesn't see his death as a moment of defeat. He sees it as victory. The, the crown that he refers to, he's probably talking to sort of like you guys have seen like images of the laurel leaf. You know, that like a marathon runner would win, so the laurel crown, that's probably what, he, what he's thinking of. It's the crown given to an athlete after they've endured a long road. Paul sees the culmination of his life not as defeat, but as victory. And that doesn't mean that he's not going to experience the, the loss of everything. Donald Hall, as far as his just description of what aging and dying is like, he's right. To grow old is to lose everything. And yet Paul is saying that there's this thing that endures beyond it, something that even aging and death cannot rob us of. And it's a victory that completely overshadows the entire experience. So as to change it all, he sees the culmination of his life not as defeat, but as victory. So how could he do that? Well, I think the, the answer is the gospel. And I know that sounds totally reductionistic, but I think that it is, it is true. Paul could face death with hope because he believed that death had been defeated in Christ. So what does that mean? So you guys have seen the video that we've played a couple times. We'll play it a couple more times this summer. We're sort of walking through the, the, what we're calling the five acts of the gospel. What Christians believe is that God made this world to be a place where humanity and him would be companions. They would share life together. And humanity was meant to rely on God for all things. And that would include life itself. Humanity was meant to have this deep connection to God as the source of their life. And as long as, as, as we lived under his kingdom, that we would have had access to that. But there's this event that took place in humanity's very ancient past where we rejected the kingdom of God, where we wanted to decide right and wrong on our own terms. We wanted to discover a way to be independent rather than dependent. And so we cut ourselves off from the source of life. Now, that decision, that, that thing that took place in humanity's very ancient past, that rejection of, of God's kingship, that's what Christians call sin. That's what, we, what, what, what the writers of the scriptures mean when they talk about sin. It's any time where the, the, the reign of God is sort of rejected in favor of the rule of self. And so what I'm trying to point out is that in the Christian perspective, death happens because sin happened. Death is a consequence of sin. They're sort of interrelated. And that's also why throughout the, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, there's always been this sense that you can't really do anything about death unless you've done something about sin. God loves the people he has made. He does not want to hand us and the world over to death. But in order to restore us from death, he has to rescue us from sin. The connection between us and the source of life has to be healed. For death to be defeated, sin must be forgiven. And so how does God accomplish this? He becomes one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he identifies with us in our deepest pain. He faces all the pressures of our world. He lives through the pressure of knowing that his life will end. He identifies with us in our mortality. And yet in the middle of it, he lives the life we were meant to live, never rejecting the kingdom, but embodying it fully because he is the king. 
Jesus lived his life never once rejecting God, but died like someone who had. And he did it so that our sin could be forgiven. He did it so that the thing standing between us and the source of life could be entirely removed. And we could have relationship with our maker again. Now, here's the thing. For Christians, if Jesus had only died, that wouldn't give us any sort of hope, right? So, like, if, if Jesus had only died then there would be no reason to think that any of his claims were true, that we should like follow him or base our whole lives on him. And certainly, if Jesus had only died, we would have no hope going into death. No hope if Jesus had only died. I think one of the amazing things that you, that you find out as you read the scriptures is that Jesus didn't remain dead. I'd like to speak to this for a minute because it's, it's sort of important to, to recognize this from, from sort of a historical standpoint. It's important for us to, to talk about the fact that the post-mortem appearances of Christ, so I'm talking about are the times when Jesus is seen after his death. Almost, I mean, a vast, vast majority of scholars believe that those appearances took place, and I'm talking about not just Christians, but atheists. Now, if you're an atheist you'll present an alternative explanation for how those appearances took place. So you'll, you'll want to appeal to the idea of mass hallucination. That's one of the, the ones that's sometimes popular. Something that's popular nowadays would be to say that when the Christians talk about the resurrection of Jesus, they don't actually mean he, he rose in a bodily sense. What they mean is that they, they sort of had a, had a, like a sense of his presence that was so deep or a sense of his legacy, maybe, that was so deep that they sort of crafted a mythology to describe what they were feeling. So that would be another way that, that if, if you're an atheist, that you may want to explain the post-mortem appearances. But 75% of scholars, atheist and Christian, believe that these appearances took place. The most conservative of atheists will acknowledge the empty tomb. I'm talking about Greco-Roman New Testament scholars, atheist and Christian. They'll acknowledge, at the very least, the empty tomb, most of them, the post-mortem appearances. For me and myself, in doing the research, I feel like I have to go where the evidence leads, which is that in a Jewish mind, it would never occur to them to talk about like just an enduring sense of Jesus' presence. They would never refer to that as anastasis, which means bodily resurrection. That word would not occur to them to use because it means bodily resurrection. So they're using this term bodily resurrection to refer to what has happened with, with Jesus. And for me, just... There's no other way to explain the rise of early Christianity or even the writings of the New Testament without reference to an actual resurrection. The historical method affirms that Jesus rose. It doesn't challenge that hypothesis. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means for us the same thing that it meant for the writers of the New Testament— Jesus rose, that means something for us. It meant that God's love had defeated sin. It meant that God's love had defeated death. And that it had been done entirely on his grace. So that the way that we, that we gain the benefits of Jesus' work is only by trust. It's just by trusting in him. And because God's love has defeated sin, and, and defeated the, like our own sin and healed our relationship to our maker, it meant that it had defeated our deaths 
as well. The, the, the early Christians believed that they could face death in the teeth with total confidence because on the other side of it wasn't futility and finality, but resurrection. Jesus rising meant that they would rise. And so what you end up getting is Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he's quoting this, this song that Christians would sing from early, early on, where they would sing this, this song, saying, it was actually a quote from the Old Testament, saying, death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? If the resurrection of, of Jesus is true, death doesn't have a victory. Death is the thing that seems most final, most fundamental to our existence. It's how it feels. But because of Christ, when we face down death, we have this access to this sort of strength. Because really there is something more fundamental even than death. There is something more final, more powerful, and it is the love of God. It is the love of God that drove him to make the world is the love that drove Christ to the cross, is the love that raised him from the grave. Aging doesn't look like victory. It looks like loss. Paul is losing everything. We all have to face the same process that Donald Hall described. To grow old is to lose everything, but whatever age takes away, it cannot take away the victory of the love of God in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul writes this, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. From his perspective, there's no reason to say that unless we ourselves will be risen back to life. The gospel is the announcement that God's love in Christ is the most enduring thing in all creation. That when God has drawn us to him and brought us to himself sovereignly through faith in Christ, he does not let us go. That as we age, no matter what we lose, we do not lose the love of God. And for me, as I was reflecting on this this past week, you know, given my family history, assuming I don't end like a you know, violent car crash or something, if I get to the, the later stages of aging, given my family history, the final couple of years, I won't be lucid. So as I just think about that, the fact that like how I understand the world will be totally addled in the end. Where's my comfort? I've seen almost all my grandparents descend well into late stage dementia. I almost certainly will too. And yet what Paul's announcing here is that my connection to him is not based ultimately on my mental ability to stay connected. It's based on Jesus. That dementia and senility cannot separate me from the love of God. It doesn't have that kind of power anymore. The moment when this clockwork organism finally stops, that moment will not separate me. God's love will persist. It is ours in Christ. It will persist beyond our death, beyond the end of the aging process, and it will bring us back to restore us at the resurrection so that God can just go right on making us the objects of his love forever and ever and ever. And that's why the Christian can have hope in the face of death. 
And this kind of love changes a person. It changed Paul. It changed the way he lived. In fact, it's not just hope that we're given at the end. It's actually, you know, we talked about how, how to, to age well means to live well. The gospel actually instructs us, invites us into the way to, to live well. There's a, an author named Thomas McGuane. I, I know him because he wrote a book on fishing called The Longest Silence, and he's hilarious. I've never laughed out loud for so long. Just re- I typically don't laugh out loud while reading. I laugh a lot with movies. But with reading, I mean, tears coming down my eyes. He's very funny, but he's also full of pathos. He's brilliant. So in an interview, he was talking about a novel of his that I haven't read, but he, he said this phrase that struck me where he said, I wanted to write about a character who had no strategy for dying. I was like, strategy for dying? That's an amazing phrase. And obviously my imagination took it. So, like, I just love that phrase because I think in some ways that's sort of what, what we're given in the gospel. We're given sort of this, this perspective where we can face down the, the corridor of our lives and strategize toward a way of life. Strategize toward a way of life. We're given a purpose in the gospel because the gospel restores us to our purpose. So in, in the final essay collection that he ever wrote, Donald Hall, he included an essay called 700 Words. 700 Words. And I want to bring this essay up because I think when we, oftentimes when we think about aging, one of the things that, that we're afraid of is sort of the loss of purpose, the loss of purpose, like our, an inability to, to do the things that we most deeply identify with ourselves, right? That could be career, that could be a hobby. And, and Donald Hall really does a good job of illustrating that in, in this essay called 700 Words. And when the essay begins, it sounds like Donald Hall is just being cocky. I mean, he, he, he opens and he just starts rattling off all the stuff that he's done, right? Awards, I mean, just awards and awards and awards. He was a really celebrated author, poet laureate, and he was rattling all, off all this stuff. And then he starts talking about, oh, and by the way, I could do all that in like a year. I mean, where he just talks about like how prolific he was. To put it in perspective, you know the, um, the page in books that says like more by this author? You know I'm talking about? And it sort of lists his books. For Donald Hall, it requires two columns in small print, top of the page to the bottom of the page. He was just hugely prolific, just pumped out literature and prose and like and then got awards. So the, the essay begins and he just sounds like he's being cocky. He's like just telling the reader about all the stuff that he did. And then suddenly it comes to the end of the essay. And he talks about what it's like to be writing as he nears the age of 90. He's talking about how he, the, the effort to get to his seat to write requires a lot more of him now. And he can only do a little, and then he has to sleep. And then he gets up, and he tries it again, and then he has to sleep again. There's somebody that comes and sort of helps him eat, and then he tries to write a little bit more. And we're talking about a guy that would pump out three essay collections in a year sometimes. He gets to the end of the essay, and he says, it now takes me a month to write 700 words. Here they are. And you realize that this whole thing, this tiny page-and-a-half essay that you've been reading, took him 30-plus days to compose, writing every day. And it's this like deep illustration where, where you, you realize that Donald Hall is, is showing you through literature, this process of aging, take, taking away the thing that he most identifies with himself. And that can be deeply disorienting. I think we all have a sense that, that aging will do that. That aging will strip away the things that we most deeply identify with ourselves. 
do we have a purpose that can endure the aging process? When we're younger, we take on so much, right? We have a lot of energy, and sometimes we feel invincible. So we're doing family and work and hobbies and friendships, all sorts of things. And for many of us, we'll take on all these things. We feel such a sense of strength, such a, such a sense, of, sense of ambition. And then we get into the later stages of the aging process, and the energy begins to fade, and, and we realize that we're limited. And so we basically have to start bailing water, right? And sometimes the aging process happens rapidly for us. And, and when the process really begins, we aren't actually re- ready for it. And it can be heart-wrenching because what ends up happening is aging takes away this thing that we thought was our purpose, and then we feel like we have no purpose. A lot of times this happens with career, that something in the process removes career from you. You can't work the same way or at all anymore. And then there's this crisis of what is my meaning now? Sometimes it's just like a favorite hobby that's taken away. You're no longer able to do it. And so you start asking, what is my purpose? Here's the thing. That career was never your purpose. That talent was never your purpose. It was a gift. The gospel is restoring us to our purpose. And it's a purpose that can last for the entire aging process. This is an important thing to think about societally, just to add one more layer to this. Societally, this issue of meaning and purpose has, has become sort of more and more written about. There are actually geriatric doctors talking about this crisis of meaning because people are living longer than they ever have before. And so even though they're still retiring at 65, there's still 25 years of life oftentimes. And so they start to wonder, what is my actual purpose here? And for many, it ends in sort of crushing depression because, like we've talked about, in our culture, we measure our value by our productivity. So it's like, well, I'm not being productive at a career anymore. That must mean I'm, I'm purposeless. And sometimes society treats us the same way, which is just despicable. But this passage reveals something. It reveals a purpose that can persist throughout our lives. It's a purpose that we can only get through the gospel. Paul says this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure, so so his death, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Paul, tell us what's your purpose. I've kept the faith. Paul uses an image here, uses this image of a drink offering being poured out. It's an image of worship. What's Paul's purpose? To be poured out as a drink offering. His purpose is the glory of God and the life of the world. And as he's nearing the end, he's able to look back and say that I have lived my life fighting the fight of faith. I've lived my life running the race of faith. I've been poured out like a drink offering. In other words, he has held on to his trust in Jesus. He has relied on the grace of God all his days. Paul lived his life as an act of worship. And this is bigger than a career, but it's something that gets expressed through a career. It's bigger than any talent or hobby, but it gets expressed through talents and hobbies. Our purpose is bigger than any occupation. Our purpose is bigger than, than the kids still being at home. And, being able to, to, and us being able to pour into them, our purpose is bigger than any life stage. We have a strategy for aging. 
And it comes down to living a life shaped by Jesus and his way. It ends up not being a huge secret. Love God, love people. The kind of life that we want to look back on is a life lived through zealous worship, costly service, self-giving love. It's the way of the love of God in Christ. And it really is the path to deepest meaning. Paul himself said that without love, he'd be nothing. Jesus doesn't command us to do things arbitrarily. So if Jesus calls us to live a particular way, it's not because he just likes telling us what to do. It's because it's the right way to live. Because there's life there. When we live for the glory of God and the life of the world, we are tapping into what we were made for. We're tapping into the kind of life we won't regret. It's a meaning that aging cannot take away. I have seen people who have loved God and loved people right up until the end, bearing fruit every step of the way. In the gospel, we have access to our true purpose. It's a purpose that we can carry to the end. It is the only purpose that will leave us able to look back on a life and, and, and say, I lived for the right reason. Which leads to Paul's final statement. So what this purpose comes down to, it's not just about giving love to God and giving love to people. It also means receiving love. We talked about how our hope in the gospel really comes down to the fact that we've received love in Christ and hope in him because of the resurrection. It comes down to the love of God and us receiving it through the gospel. Our purpose becomes giving love, but also it it means receiving love from the relationships of people within the church. The gospel gives us relationships in aging. So just a quick point. One of the things that that comes up a lot in literature that I was reading is that aging well doesn't all depend on the person who's aging. Henry Nouwen spent a lot of time talking about the responsibility of caregiving, and he saw this as something that all the church participates in. That like we as a community sharing life together, we were meant to come around those who are entering into the final stages of aging and walk, and walk with them through it. The church should be a community where all of us can feel this confidence that like for me, as, as I near the end, I will not do it alone. Like I need the assurance that I will be known and loved by you at the end. That I, I, that I won't have to worry about somebody to visit. We have a culture, and I'll I'll talk about this more in our sermon on justice, but we have a culture that largely forgets the very old. In the church, it should not be so. We have responsibility to each other. And so as, as, as brothers and sisters among us near the very end, we should rearrange our lives to give them dignity. I need that assurance. And in the gospel, God has brought together a people who have loved the appearing of Christ, who are looking to him with hope, who are coming together to realize that the kingdom of God is coming and it is a place where the very old are remembered. We need that assurance. So what's a way that 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 sort of What does that look like in the end? John Dunlop is a a geriatric doctor who's worked a lot with folks nearing the end. And what he says is that there are four things every one of us needs to hear and say 
in order to sort of arrive at the end with more peace. And the four things are, I love you, thank you, I forgive you, forgive me. I love you, thank you, I forgive you, forgive me. The The church should be a people who walk with each other and remind each other of those four things. Because the gospel has provided everything we need. It has provided everything we need to say, I love you. It has provided every reason for us to be grateful for all the ways that God has blessed us through each other. It has given us all the resources we need to, to have the humility to say, forgive me. And it's given us all the resources to forgive. In the gospel, we should be together in aging. So in the gospel, we have hope, purpose, and relationships in aging. So like we talked about, aging well ultimately comes down to, to living well. It's the culmination of a, of a life lived to God. It's about living life in gratitude to God. It's about loving people. And just as importantly, it's about receiving love from God and from people. Now, when we talk about aging as the culmination of life, it's easy for some of us to get discouraged because we feel like it's too late. Like, well, I've spent a lot of my life not doing the stuff that you're that you're describing. So what does that mean for me? I'd like to end on a story that really struck me. It struck me because it sort of illustrated this reality that, that we not only, that aging for us can't just be about giving love. It can't just be like about an outpouring on our part. We will get exhausted and also probably a little bit legalistic and we will exhaust ourselves in works righteousness. It's not just about what we give. It, it, it's, it begins with receiving love in Christ. And it's something that can happen at any stage in life. So I'd like to share a story here, here at the end about aging that really struck me. So Godfrey Mino Camille, he was a participant in what was called the Harvard Grant Study, which was the longest-running study on happiness ever conducted. It's actually ongoing. It's been going for about 75, 80 years, I think. Essentially, what the study gathers together, it gathers together men at, at the beginning from about age 18. It's now into the, the following generations. But in the, in the beginning, it, gathered together men around 18, 19 years of age, and, and Godfrey was a part of it. One of the psychologists leading the study wrote about Godfrey, and here's some sections of the article. Godfrey was an intractable and unhappy hypochondriac. In other words, he, he just constantly thought there was something wrong with him physically. Camille's parents were upper class. They were also socially isolated and pathologically suspicious. A child psychologist who reviewed Godfrey's record 30 years later, thought his childhood one of the bleakest in the study. On the 10th anniversary of his joining the study, each man was given an A through an E, rating, sort of anticipating future personality stability. When it was Godfrey's turn, he was assigned an E, the worst rating. Then Godfrey's life goes goes downhill from there. He, He was rejected at his first attempt for medical school. He got in eventually. But when he finally did get in, he he resented his patience. He didn't like helping people. He eventually attempted suicide. He survived, and then things eventually came to a head when he was 35. The article reads, At age 35, Godfrey had a life-changing experience. He was hospitalized for 14 months in a veteran's hospital with pulmonary tuberculosis. So at this point, point, we have records from, from Godfrey. And he says that this hospital stay completely changed him. He's sort of in the face of death, right? He's, he's in this hospital where, where death is all around him. And as he's there, 
he has an encounter with Jesus. He doesn't give any more detail. He just says that someone with a capital S cared for me. And that's about it as far as what Godfrey actually talks about in terms of the, the experience that happened in, in the hospital. We, we don't have any more detail. But as time would go on, he, he would add that, that the experience was an experience of love that changed him. And so he returned to life, and he started to pour that love into other people. He started to, to make it his purpose to reflect the love he had experienced back out to the world around him. So here's some more of the article. Released from the hospital, Dr. Camille became an independent physician, married, and grew into a responsible father and clinic leader. Whereas at 30, he had hated his dependent patients. By 40, his adolescent fantasy of caring for others that led him to be a doctor in the first place became a reality. In vivid contrast with his post-graduation panic, he now reported that what he liked most about medicine was that, quote, I had problems and I went to others and now I enjoy people coming to me. The author writes, and again, the author's not a Christian, so he's going to come at this from a slightly different perspective than Godfrey or, or most of us. So the author writes, when I was 55 and, and Camille, the author was part of the study, by the way. So when I was 55 and Camille was almost 70, I asked him what he had learned from his children. You know what I learned from my children? He blurted out tears in his eyes. I learned love. At 82, Godfrey, we know Camille had a fatal heart attack while mountain climbing in the Alps which he dearly loved. His church was packed for the memorial service. There was a deep and holy authenticity about the man, said a bishop in his eulogy. His son said he lived a very simple life, but it was rich in relationships. His daughter recalled that, he was, that, that she knew him most of all as a loving man. Here's what Godfrey said of himself, and I'd like to put this up on the board. So if you don't know the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, it's about a, a stuffed animal that is loved by a child and becomes uh, an actual rabbit. He's going to make reference to the story. He writes this. Before there were dysfunctional families, I came from one. My professional life hasn't been disappointing, far from it. But the truly gratifying unfolding has been to the person I've slowly become. Comfortable, joyful, connected, effective. Since it wasn't widely available then, I hadn't read that children's classic, The Velveteen Rabbit, which tells how connectedness is something we must let happen to us, and then we become solid and whole. As that tale recounts tenderly, only love can make us real. Aging is the culmination of our lives. To age well, we have to live well. And in the gospel, in the love of God poured out in Christ, we have access to life. Wherever we are in the aging process, we have access to life. We have been given the love of God in Christ. We have been given the spirit to pour that love out to others. We can be changed I don't have a spiritual practice for you this week. Aging is the culmination of life. The application for you is that I want you to live. I want us to live. Today isn't about a one-time short application. It's about all of life. 
Receive the love of God. Give the love of God. Only love can make us real. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you experienced the sting of death before us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us confused as to the way to live, but you have showed us the way to live. And you've given us freedom to live it by your grace because we are not dependent on our works for your approval and your love. You poured it out first, and so we love you because you loved us. God, help us to age. Amen.